You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. going to be reading Romans 3, verses 1 through 20. So what advantage does the Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I am using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come, their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Thank you, Tiffany. You can have a seat. I just want to echo the welcome. Really glad you guys are here, uh, whether it's your first time at the village or you've been with us for a while. Um, before we go into the sermon, I, I, I don't know about you, but it's easy for a church to become almost like another checkoff list of things we're supposed to do. And, and there's things to do, but I was, um, I don't know what it was. And this is not part of our plan, but this morning I just felt this, this just um, prompting for us to have a moment to pray, kind of still our hearts. Um, and as I was praying for, for you guys, just a picture that came to mind was uh, just feeling like some of us were walking, but it's like we're walking across a gorge on one of those like rope, la- rope bridge things that's real shaky, and every step you take feels you wobbly, like the ground doesn't feel solid beneath you. Like, I don't know what it was. I just felt a prompting that some of us are feeling like that as we live life right now. And as I was thinking, and yeah, I'm probably, I, I can definitely identify myself uh, I, you know, I came to these verses, and probably familiar for some of you. This is from Psalm 40. So close your eyes for a moment. Just listen to this. If you're feeling that, even if you're not, just listen. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit, out of the muddy clay, and hear this part. 
and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. So just keep your eyes closed for a moment. We're not going to do this for long, but does life feel shaky for you? Do you feel like you, you don't have a foundation under your feet right now? You don't know where you're going. It's scary. It's hard. There's conflict. There's pain. There's concern. Anxiety. If that's you, can I invite you to step on the solid rock that is Christ? To know, even if you don't have it all figured out, God does. And you can trust him. So just take a quiet moment, however you need to do. You pray for whatever feels stressful in your life right now, whatever feels shaky, and leave it to the Lord. Lord, we, we thank you for this space. Lord, we, we know ourselves and left to ourselves, we might not always seek this out. So we thank you for the rhythms you give us to walk with others, whether we're feeling like it or not, and to be able to be reminded of your great faithfulness when other things sometimes prove so faithless. And God, even the ground that we walk on feels shaky. We thank you, Lord, you don't shake. You're sturdy. So I pray as as much as I can for a, a number of people like this in one space that you see the things that feel shaky to us. You, Lord, know the things that feel hard for us. And you're reminding us that you are for us. We can trust in you. So I pray for my friends here, Lord, invite us into your power and your might and your gentleness that you go before us. So we thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Just be able to be reminded, we just don't need more activity. We need more of you. So draw us to your presence this day. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I almost felt like I could go a whole sermon on that. But look, we got got a sermon planned for today. uh, For a few weeks now, we've been starting this series through this wonderful, dense, rich a letter originally that um, it's, it's one of our books in the Bible now, the book of Romans, written by the Apostle Paul. And man, there's so much in this. I mean, books are like this thick. Like if you need to flatten out something, you get a Romans contrary and put it on top because it's so dense. But if you want to boil down like some of the critical message, it's, it's explaining what does it mean to need Jesus? Why do we need Jesus? How are we pointed to the righteousness that is found in Christ and, you know, as I think about this idea of, of needing Jesus, I don't know what it was, but I came to a memory of when I was in college, freshman year. And I'm not going to share how old I am, but what I will say is there was no such thing as an email address back then. I didn't, email happened while after I was in school. So you do your math if you want to know. Um, it was a long time ago, but I remember this as if it were fresh that we had a, a pretty prominent building on campus where students are walking by. And in front of this building, there would be some people who would do loud preaching. Um, and, and, you know, some of it, I think, it, I would say it was done with a good heart to, again, let people know the need for Jesus. But man, like, they were known as really angry people because they would shout at everyone walking by, telling them about the wrath of God saying that you're all going to hell, 
this is why you're all uh, messed up. And I mean, there's some stuff I would actually maybe th- theologically say, oh, well, you know, I think there's some hints of truth, but the tone was just very angry. So when it came to the wrath of God, they were really good about talking about the wrath of God. But what I realized for me, even how I associate that, yo, when you talk about the wrath of God, people just shut down. Because they were getting fights. They almost like, almost hands are being thrown. It was just, didn't feel very Christ-like in a way. And as, as you're going to see here, today we're looking at the case for wrath. We're looking at what we heard Tiffany read that talks about the judgment of God, the wrath of God. And I'm going to be honest, in the year 2022, this is not one of those topics that you put out there as like, yeah, this will bring the people through the doors. Talk about sinners in the hands of an angry God. The wrath. And, and here's, here's what I want to do with you. And maybe, if you're, especially if you're new to church or you're exploring this whole thing, you're like, oh, no. Y'all, I thought they were this one, one of those cool churches, because they got like cool, beautiful people singing these cool Jesus love songs, and they got cute, chubby babies. Oh, man, this is one of those angry churches. They're going to yell at me the whole time. And, and um, my, my hope for us today is as we look into the scriptures to see, yes, it does talk about anger. It, it actually does talk about judgment. Very clearly talks about wrath, but my hope is that we would see the wrath of God as an invitation to the great love of God. I know that's an audacious claim, but we're going to get right into it. Um, and as we saw read in, in this passage in chapter 3, it's the author Paul's response to what we looked at last week. And just encourage you, if you didn't get to listen, you can go online, find a podcast. But this was the end of last week's passage in chapter 2, verse 28. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh, On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. And what this was encapsulating was this whole wonderful exhibition of Paul saying, hey, what makes you right before God is not these religious imagery that you've done. These things that you've always thought is what sets you apart. Like, that's not what makes you a true uh, member of God's family. Like, there's got to be something that happens inwardly. And, and this idea that the common need for all of rebellious humanity, whether you're religiously Jewish or you were unreligiously non-Jewish, it, it's not our need for just mere external change. We don't just need to be better at looking religious. We actually need a transformed inner being. In other words, how it describes here, we need a circumcised heart. So like any good teacher, and some of you are teachers, so you, you know, you're following Paul here, like a good teacher, he's expecting the kind of questions that might come after teaching like that, that his students might have as he's talked about the circumcision of the heart as opposed to like these external symbols. So maybe we can think of it, some of their objections to God's wrath, because he's talking about those who, like we looked at last week, who is under judgment. And he's saying your religious symbolism in itself, that's not what makes you right before God. So I would assume some of his audience now, they've got some questions. Maybe they have some objections to God's wrath based on what Paul has said earlier. So look again, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Paul's looking at some of the questions that might have their asked. So what advantage does the Jew have? Maybe a, a good Hebrew is asking, um, so you're saying that circumcision doesn't matter. So why generation after generation, 
We've been doing some slicing action. What was that all about? If you're saying it doesn't matter, why are we doing that? Why we got a crying baby on the eighth day when we didn't need to have a crying baby? Like, whoa, what did that mean? What was all that talk about? You are my separated people. You are my people called out and to separate you from the rest of the nations through this act of circumcision. So Paul, what was that about? Did that mean anything? Why do we do all that? And Paul is answering them by saying, no, it actually did mean something. If, if you were the circumcised, if you were a Hebrew, what that meant was you were given the law, as it says here. You were entrusted with the ways of God. And when we said entrusted, that doesn't just mean you were instructed how to live, but you were called to represent God. That, that's what it means they were entrusted with the very words of God. People might also ask, so... Um, you know what? If, if people couldn't live up to that instruction from God, does that mean that God's commands were wrong? If people are unfaithful, to, and, and Paul's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't you put your unfaithfulness on God's faithfulness. He's been faithful. Even if everyone falls short, it doesn't negate God's faithfulness. And, and it even goes to the extent of some were twisting these ideas in, in dangerous ways. We're saying things like, well, if, if God doesn't show favor to those based on these symbols, but he shows favor to those who, who need him, who fall short, if it doesn't matter what you do, then maybe should we, God's a God who forgives. So should we sin as much as we can? Because if God loves to forgive, that must mean he'll, he'll forgive us more the more we sin. He's like, yeah, y'all crazy. That's not, what, that's not what this is about. Uh, just the parenting, though, we were, as we're talking about families, be re- and this, is, this for, can be for all of us, be really careful that we don't just respond to misbehavior. You want to be, mind- and this is true for church, work, family, we don't want to just kind of be people who respond to the squeaky wheel of those who are like misbehaving at the expense of, of others, because what that can do in ways that are not even intended is kind of create this, oh, for me to be truly part or to be accepted or to be heard is I, I should like do worse because I get attention then from mom and dad. And just, I, I think it's, it's not exactly a parallel here, but what Paul is writing here, no, 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 God doesn't forgive more or give more love because y'all more jacked up. That's, that's not the way he operates. So if we think about all these different questions, maybe a modern corollary for some of us, and, and I know I've walked with some of us who had these questions, maybe if we start to hear all these things like, it doesn't matter what you do, it's what Christ has done, you can't do enough, you don't do all these, it's not about being religious, it's not about jumping through the hoops. So maybe some of us come to the point where it's, so why do we do these things? Why do we bother? Why, why do we even try to be good? Why should we try to be holy in, in different ways? If it, in the end, if it doesn't matter, if we're all kind of jacked up before God, if we're all unrighteous, regardless of something like circumcision or maybe modern days, whether we go to church, whether we're generous, what, does, if it doesn't matter, then why, why are you even bothering? Maybe we can think of some of these objections as the people's way of asking, is God being unfair here? Has he called us to something that's impossible? Has he called us to something unreasonable? And what Paul is um, probably getting to is they're in essence judging God's judgment. They're saying that the way God judges is unjust. 
It's not fair. But Paul's wanting to make clear here how God's judgment is right, that God's wrath is appropriate. And maybe for some of us, when we think about wrath, anger, maybe some of the reasons it's hard to think about righteous anger or, or just wrath is you've probably encountered unrighteous anger in this world. You've encountered people who've been really wrathful, but hasn't been done out of love and care. It's been done punitively. It's been done maliciously. It's been done with an intent to hurt you, shame you, demean you. And you're like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm not down with that. I'm not down with wrath because wrath does not feel good to receive. I, I, I'm not. And I want to just encourage you, don't read too much into who God is based on maybe what you and I have experienced in this world. Because Paul then goes on to expound on this starting in verse 9 by providing the justification for God's wrath. And I want to look at a few uh, points of justification for God's wrath. If we want some of the reasons for God's wrath. And I think this is important. Let me read it again. It says, what then, starting verse 9, are we any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, and, and you're supposed to, as you're reading this, in those days, this is like the imagery of like being in a courtroom. And like, this is the case against humanity, against the world. And in those days, communities were much smaller and intimate. So even law, legal proceedings were done in public. So everyone would be there. So you're supposed to have that kind of imagery as you're hearing now the attorney presenting the case for wrath. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." So Paul presents here several biblical passages, and most of these are from the Psalms, from the Old Testament. And he lays out the case against the world's state of rebellion against God. And as we see in our beginning there, both Jews and Greeks, that's everyone. Like, everyone's under this indictment. And Paul, if, if you, you might have caught this, right? He uses the purposeful language of body parts to illustrate this. He talks about throats, tongues, lips, mouth, feet, eyes. He uses very purposeful imagery for us as we hear this to think this is all of us. It's like the whole being he's talking about. It's not just the way we think here. It's like the whole thing is deserving of wrath. It's sinful. All of our existence is marked with sin. And I want to I just explain a, a thought here because we have to be careful. There's terms like total depravity, which is this idea that Everything is marked with sin. That just it, as beautiful, I mean, these kids are amazing. But even them being born into this world, you're born into the state of sin, depravity. Some of you are like, yo, you whack, dude. It was like, I tell you, innocent, cute little fat baby. What do you tell you? It, total depravity doesn't mean utter depravity. Utter depravity is the sense that it's about as bad as it could be. We are not under utter depravity because there's something called common grace from God. It means that even in this world, as jacked up as it might feel for some of us, it's not even as bad as it could be. That's utter depravity. Like, it's all messed up. Total depravity is that they're still good. There's people, they don't have to be Christians to add value to this world. People who make wonderful vaccines, 
who uh, improve life for the poor, who are generous and kind, care for children in the city. You don't have to be a Christian to do those things and to add to the common well-being of society. That, but there is a sense of total depravity that even as we do good, we all commonly fall short of God's standards. We're not utterly depraved, but there's totally depravity. So again, we have these imagery. Throats, tongues, lips, mouth. Man, I was thinking, like, he could have picked a lot of other body parts. He spent a lot of time on this area having to do with our words. And just a reminder, um, man, James, if you're interested in, if you're a talker, you might want to go to James and just read there, right? Because James talks about the power of our words, power of the mouth. Because here's the thing, the things we say, you might not get arrested for it. It's, we live in a weird world, right? You can say like criminal kind of stuff, but it's just words. It's just words. That's not what I meant. Don't read. It's, it's just words. You should be too sensitive. Kind of get a backbone. Is a spineless millennial generation all hurt by the word. I, I would actually suggest words can be really harmful. Because we have that throughout the scriptures and we have it right here. And it describes, right, the power of words to demonstrate the impact of sin. How much destruction is rooted from what comes out of our mouth? If you want to see sin at work, just look at our words. Look at social media platforms. Maybe, I don't know, Instagram. Everyone's kind of nice on Instagram. But like everywhere else, it's like the power, power of words. We have feet talking about ushering in violence. Now, I don't know if it grieves you, but it grieves me when I look at, I'm from Philadelphia, and I'm, I'm now, obviously, I'm, I'm a homer in Baltimore. In both of our cities, the murder rate is like through the roof. It just breaks my heart at the destruction of life where humanity has lost its value. Doesn't matter what religion you are, every human life has value before God, and violence and, and death and destruction has just become too commonplace, too normal, to the point where we don't even blink if we see it on the news. That's like sad. I would, I would suggest tragic. And our eyes, that there's no fear of God. One, one way I understand fear of God, um, and that might seem weird for some of you, but fear of God is living like God is real. That, that God sees what we do. That's what living with the fear of God is. And he's saying, like, that's, that's what? You need an indictment against people? People don't live like God is real. Even the religious people. Because religious people are sometimes the best about putting forth how they want to be viewed. But when they think no one's looking, yo, it's not even like God's real. That's what he's talking about. There's no fear of God in their eyes. So I'm, I'm going to guess some of you, depending on who you are, you're every one of these, oh, that's me. Like put a knife in my heart kind of. I'm going to guess some others of us, maybe you're the um, kind of good people in the room. You're thinking, um, I mean, it doesn't really describe me. I'm a peacemaker. I like people. Even on Twitter, I'm, I'm the nice person on there. I, I let other people have their pizza first when we have, I, yeah. um, 
And I think it's important for us to recognize, even as Paul's writing here, because maybe depending on our context, we often think about sin, and that's one of those weird words, but we also often think about sin as just the things we do that are wrong. And we think about it in a very personal transgression against God kind of manner, and that's appropriate. That's absolutely some of the aspects of sin, but I would suggest what we also see here is that sin is a corporate state of who we are. It's not just the individual things that we might do in transgression, but sin is also who we are collectively as a people. Again, Hebrews and Gentiles, all of us together, what does it mean to be? It means to be in a state of rebellion, communally against God. In another way, and this is something that Paul gets into more in chapter 7, and we'll hit it then, but sin is not just the acts that we do wrong. Because if it's about that, some of us can honestly stand pretty justified in this room. But I would suggest sin, it's like a power present in our world with a life of its own. Like sin described in scripture is not just like, are you good or bad? It's like there is this like power almost that compels us to be at each other's throats. Demonically. Because we're the world and all that was found in it, including humanity, we were created for perfect harmony with God and with one another. That's how we were created. But sin has marred it all. Sin has entered the perfect design of God and just like obliterated it. And, and yeah, I, it's not as bad as it could be, but we see the evidence of sin in all things. And I would suggest for us here an increased awareness and knowledge of sin. It helps us to grasp why wrath is warranted. But if maybe, so I'm going to guess some of us might not be fully convinced here. Uh, maybe, I mean, maybe some of us bristle at the idea of wrath. Like we would be really happy if churches never mentioned wrath. If we could just talk like, how Jesus makes all your dreams come true, man, it would be much easier to bring my friends, wrath, constantly kind of mean and, and angry. Uh, maybe, we don't, we don't, maybe we don't like associating God with anger. Again, for maybe how some of you have received unhealthy anger in your lives. Maybe for some of us, it's our observation that when people do speak about God's wrath, especially religious people, it often seems to be pointed at very specific kinds of people. Like, it's not like here, like, Everyone, it's like, no, you groups of people, you are under the wrath of God. And maybe some of us, you're, you're just nice and you're like, I don't like that. I don't like singling out anyone for different lifestyle choices or, or uh, affiliations to say that you're particularly under the wrath of God. I mean, this, this can be scary to bring up in a place like this, but maybe for some of you, the wrath of God has been weaponized against you. Maybe you've been in places where you heard about wrath all the time. <laughs> To the point where like you're trembling, like church became an unsafe place where you were deathly afraid because wrath was weaponized in, I would suggest, unhelpful ways. Coaxing you, like not healthy fear of God, but like unhealthy fear of God. Maybe, um, and I would say I'm here, maybe you don't want to associate God with fear, like you don't want it to be a fear-based God because you want to highlight his love. And I actually do too. I'm, I'm drawn to God's love. I love God's love. I love talking about God's love. I love singing about God's love. I, but I would suggest to truly grasp the enormity of God's love, we need to recognize the justification for his wrath. It's addressing what verse 18 says. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man, if you need a, a description of like modern day brokenness, I think it's like right there. 
there is no fear of God before their eyes. Because wrath tells us in a world where sin seems to run rampant, where, where people seem to get away with terrible things and no one gives a rip or no one seems to, where torment and abuse seemingly goes unchecked, where a world where the bad guys seem to be able to get away with everything they want. If you just have enough money, you can buy yourself out of any situation. Or if you know enough right people, you won't get in trouble for what you do. In a world where the bad guys seem to do whatever they want, God's wrath says God absolutely sees evil. He's like us. He gets bothered by things that seem wrong, and he does something about it. That's what God's wrath is. God's wrath is, yes, there is evil, it's, it, and here's what I'm going to do about it. Because here's something that's come from multi-decades of doing ministry now. Um, you know who I've come to learn doesn't really have a problem with the God of wrath? Those who have endured the horrific injustice of sin. Those who have had to walk through You know, their survivors have had to experience the worst of humanity. They're not usually saying, yeah, everyone deserves kind of a fair shot. No, they're like, no, there needs to be justice. I was done really dirty. I am hurt and I still bear the scars today. And you're saying nothing's going to be done about it? Because when you experience those things, when maybe you are um, a cultural minority in this country, you've experienced racism, and no one seems to care, and you see violence. Maybe you're a young woman, and you just hate the idea that you always have to look around if you're going to go jogging at night because of what some people can do. Maybe you're just bothered that there are parents who have to bury their own children. Because when you experience things like that, it gets really intellectually harder to say things like all people are fundamentally good at their core. I, we we want to believe that. But you dig deep enough, you live enough life, you live enough life, you start to really have that put into question. Again, it doesn't mean that everyone is as bad as they could be, but when you live long enough and experience enough, you start to see, yeah, not everyone's really good. Because when you or maybe your loved ones or maybe your ideological passions have had to bear the terrible brunt of someone else's rebellion, your heart cries out for justice. You want someone to know. You want to know that you're not alone in seeing this. You want to know that someone cares and someone has the power to actually do something about it. You want someone to make it right. You want justice. You want those people to have to face the consequences of their actions or maybe their inactions. You want someone to make what is wrong right. You want judgment. And maybe we wouldn't say it that way, but I would, I would challenge, if you dig deep enough, we want judgment. And some of you are right there right now. I, I hope I'm not triggering you. I'm, if I am, I, I'm sorry. We can definitely talk later, walk through this. But here's, a, here's the point. What this passage also says is that's all of us. 
It's all of us. Again, I want to make really clear, this is not like a both sides kind of thing. I'm, 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 I'm saying there are degrees of evil. There are absolutely degrees of evil. I'm not saying, oh yeah, you know what? According to God, that little beautiful little baby is the same as like Adolf Hitler before God. I'm like, no, that's stupid. Who would, who would ever say anything like, don't use your Bible to say things like that. That's ridiculous. But in terms of standing before God in righteousness, we cannot stand on our own merit, on our own favor. And in that, we are all equally deserving of judgment. Because it, it doesn't mean that there are not some people who live in more societally productive or unproductive ways, but the impact of sin lies with us all. So this might get a little personal. So um, It's really easy to think of some people as sinful. And when we say all have sinned, I don't know for you, but it's easy to kind of remove myself. Yeah, some people, really, oh yeah, sin is all away. Even in church, don't sin next to them. They all sin writ, written all over them. Um, man, I see more and more when I walk with people, <coughs> when I counsel, premarital counseling, conflict resolution, I see so much the impact of sin in our relationships. Because if you think about sin one way, maybe along with a myriad, maybe one way is sin affects the ability to do relationships the way we were intended. So what I often see is if there's a conflict situation that two people are having, even in church, it's obviously about what's going on right there. Maybe there's a disagreement, but if you dig deep enough, if you walk enough with people and you start to, you start to realize there's also stuff way in people's history that's coming out that you don't see. I mean, we're hundreds of people in here. We can't see that with our eyes, but so much of the conflict that we walk in, so much of the pain that we experience, um, it's like stuff, and I, I don't know if I would call it all sin, but there's definitely like a relational brokenness that so many have experienced. That's why, that's therapy, right? Therapy is explain your upbringing. Share about your family. Because so much of our brokenness, it's got deep layers and roots. And when we're experiencing uh, relational dysfunction, discord, disharmony now, yeah, it might be about that person because they're just stupid, but it could also be that person's got stuff that you're not even recognizing that's coming out, that's deep. Maybe they've been sinned against. How many issues, I mean, we always joke about daddy issues, mommy issues. So much of our current dysfunction is like we're still figuring out how we were raised in our own situations. And even the most harmonious of families have this. Like if we were like, this is my inner pain. Like this is how I've been sinned against that's coming out here. And, and part of my hope and just, again, this is too much to go fully into this, but Part of it is I hope that it can lead us to have more gentleness towards one another. Man, sometimes all we experience is someone like going at us and we're like, what's wrong with them? Why are so, they, they so dysfunctional? Why can't they just be human? And we don't always recognize some of the factors that have formed them in harmful, hurtful ways. Maybe past relationships that have not gone well, they've been sinned against, maybe they've been abused, maybe they've been harmed. And it's just coming out. What is it? The hurt people hurt people, right? You've heard that. But we would give gentleness and we would give kindness and grace, but it would also give us words to be able to identify what's happening. And not just, why can't we figure this out? But man, sin is at work here. 
man, I'm, I'm not just insane here. Like there's factors, like sin has ripple effects through the world. And you know what happens? That person that you might have a problem with at work, who you're like, why are the people I work with so whack? What's wrong with them? Why can't, you, you probably, if, if you had time dig into some of it, you would probably uncover a lot of family stuff there, a lot of relational issues. And, and it just, it's a cycling ripple effect. Your neighbors who drive you nuts, the person at the gym who never re-racks their weights, I'm just projecting here. <laughs> We're all bringing in our different layers of brokenness, and I would include in that sin. Sinned against, but if we're being honest, also ways we've sinned against others that haven't fully been resolved. There is no one righteous, not even one. We love to share good news at our church, but guys, we also have to get why we call it good. Because God's wrath, it paints a picture of our dire situation. If you're feeling like, yo, this, um, this, this is a little much, it, it, it's meant to kind of feel much. Like, but guys, even if it's painting a, a picture of our dire situation, it doesn't have to be the final painting in the gallery. It sounds like crazy talk, but God's people can actually find their hope in wrath. I know that sounds ridiculous, but we actually have hope in wrath. And that's our final point here. Romans chapter 3, 19 to 20, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut. What, what that imagery is supposed to be is when you are in the court and they're bringing out all of this litany of your offenses, what it's saying is your mouth being shut back then, you cover your mouth because you got nothing to say. You're like, yep, you got me. That's what, that's what it's intending here. Mouths are shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And the point of all this is to show us the reality of our situation. It's not for us to be like negative Nellies here. It's to show us the clarity of what's going on actually. Like matrix style. Like eat that pill and see clearly what's happening around you. Because often the way that you embrace how much you really need help is by fully realizing the desperation of your situation. If you don't realize the desperation of your situation, you don't always realize you need help. So some of you know my younger brother Joe, he, was, he got ill a few years ago. And in December of 2019, uh, I got a note from him saying, hey, I have to go to the hospital. I'm, I'm not feeling well. I'm like, okay, well, that, that happens. Go to the hospital. And after some different tests and different things, we realized, we learned he had leukemia. Like a really aggressive, aggressive kind of leukemia. A kind of rare one. And man, I remember being there for some of it when we, when we got the full totality of his diagnosis. It was really depressing. Because doctors, I know some of y'all, you aspiring to be doctors, you need some like soft edge too because they were like hard on it. Like, but I mean, I, I see it now. Why? But they were laying out every possible repercussion of this illness. Percentages, mortality rates. Like being very clear, um, yeah, this should actually lead to the end of your life. That, they were very clear in that. And it, it doesn't sound nice. It's much, much nicer to actually say, yeah, I know you're not feeling good, but you'll be okay. Just, you, you just need an attitude adjustment. 
Just eat, um, eat some antioxidants and, you know, watch some K-dramas and get your head in a good place. Like, that would have been really cruel of those doctors to do that. Seeing him suffering and saying, yeah, I don't want him to feel bad about this. So let's just try to, that would have been extreme. That would have been malpractice. Their job was to say, here is your condition. And if you do not do something about this, this will not end well for you. My point being, if this sermon has felt heavy, like, like maybe getting a dire dog- diagnosis at the doctor, it's kind of because it should. It should feel heavy. Because if, if you stop at verse 20, an appropriate response that you should be feeling as you read that is like, what in the world are we going to do about this? What are we going to do? There's no hope at all. And, and this is a little bit of a spoiler to next week. But it's okay. It's Bible. It's all open source. (laughs) Oh, man. The first two words of that next verse in verse 21 are some of the most amazing in scriptures. But now. Portrait is dire. It is. There's no sugarcoating it. We shouldn't sugarcoat it. It's malpractice. It's, un, it's cruel. It's much darker than we even recognize. But verse 21, but now. And it's going to go into the glory of why we call this good news. And in the midst of the most hopeless of situations when they're seen, there's, there's nothing we can do about this. Doesn't matter how good we are. Doesn't matter what we do to our bodies. Doesn't matter what rituals we go through. We are all under the same penalty. But now. And it tells us that the destruction of sin, God sees it. God sees it. But he has provided a solution. And it's like hearing the cancer diagnosis And it's like when my brother was told, yeah, this is really dire. This is not going to turn out well, but here's a treatment path. Here's a treatment path. And it's really, it was really hard, but now he's alive and he's doing well. That's, but you had to recognize how bad it was. To recognize the totality of the cure. It's like hearing the cancer diagnosis, but being told there's a remedy. That God's wrath We might have always thought of wrath as a bad thing, but his wrath, it will destroy the evil power of sin. But it's done in a way that blows us away. And I'm sure I've shared this before, but I think it's appropriate here. This is from a book by Johnny Erickson Tata called When God Weeps. If you suffer in your life, good book to pick up. But she writes this, describing it, and again, just be mindful. This is not from scripture, but it's a a fictional interpretation of what might have been going on. She describes, as the soldier swings the mallet, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm, the sensations it would be capable of. The design proves flawless. The nerve performs exquisitely. Up you go. They lifted the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. 
his father. He must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane, and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so, never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied, You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played a coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You, who molested young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religious traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness in itself. The father knows this. But the divine pair of an agreement and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. And again, take to heart, that's not straight from scripture, but I think it paints a picture when we talk about the needed wrath of God. And, you know, there's, there's ideas in Scripture I think we can pull that says hell is the active punishment of God. I think, I think you can make that case from Scripture. But the more I reflect on the nature of wrath and eternal punishment, I think it's God allowing people to experience the natural culmination of a life apart from him, which is eternal separation from him. Simply that hell is God taking his presence away. Because, I mean, and we have to get this as hard and as broken as life in this world can feel at times. We got to keep in mind, this world is still touched by the active presence of the Lord. As bad as it is, we still have common grace here. It's not as bad as it could be. But wrath is God allowing us to live apart from his loving presence. And that's what Jesus experienced on the cross in your place. Having the Father have to say, to the point where Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think that's one aspect of wrath and torment of the one who's always loved you saying. So let me ask you to stand with me as our music team comes up. I'm going to invite you. We're going to go into the time of the Lord's Supper. If you're a Christian to come up the middle aisles, take one of these elements, take it back around the outside to your chair and wait. We'll take it all together. But I, 
we don't do this all the time, but I really want to give you a moment and invite you, if you are not a Christian, if you, don't have, a, if you have questions about what that means, please talk to us after. But if you can say right now, I don't walk with God, our church is not about fear. We're not about turn or burn. Or, but I don't want you to be separated from God. I want you to hear my heart. It would be cruel of me to say, it doesn't matter as long as you can be a good person and try to be a good citizen. That would be malpractice on my part. And what I want to say to you is, God has given you an opportunity to say, I want to belong to God. And it was done through the most unimaginable ways, through the sacrifice of the perfect son himself. And that's what we remember here. So if that's you, choose to follow Jesus today. Follow him today and let us know you want to do that. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us. Help us to see our desperate need, but Lord, let it lead to incredible adulation of your love. How much you love us, Lord. We never really considered that Jesus would go through that kind of price. So lead us, Lord, into salvation and glorifying in that right now as remember your great sacrifice. So let's sing, pray, You can receive the elements and let's continue to worship the Lord.